Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 20th, 2015. We will be doing our light episode today as I continue to ramble my way through the book of Genesis. That's what I do, ramble, ramble, ramble. And as you can, t- as you can tell, my, uh, my Sunday school classes are highly interactive experiences, if you would. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said. We take the time to put God's Word back into context you know, apply our sound rules for biblical exegesis so that, you know, we're teaching sound doctrine that points us to Christ and him crucified for our sins, calls us to repent of our sins, to be forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. It's kind of all that simple, if you know know what I mean. So uh, every Wednesday, uh, well, not every Wednesday, but oftentimes on Wednesday, most of the time on Wednesday, about 99% of the time on Wednesdays, we do a light episode. That doesn't mean the topic is light. It's me. That means that we're going to drill deep into a topic. And uh, sometimes I play different lectures by different guys that I think are brilliant. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, We'll play a Sunday school that I've taught. <laughs> I, you know, I. Uh, it, anyway, we won't talk about what I think about my lessons. It's one of those things where you know, he, 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 how do I put it? You know, it's like I don't like hearing my own voice. It's the weirdest thing, and I do radio for a living. But yeah, you, you get what I'm saying. But uh, we're uh, working our way through the Book of Genesis, and today we're going to be looking at the uh, the story of uh, Abraham uh, rescuing Lot. And the appearance of Melchizedek and what that all means as we understand what Christ has done for us. So without any further ado, uh, here's the latest installment on Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Here we go. Let's pray and then we will get started. You'll notice that I'm in the book of Joshua chapter 24, although we will be going back to Genesis 12. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So here's the question for you, kind of to start off with. Abraham. Before he was Abraham, he was Abram. 
What was his standing before God prior to him being called to uproot and go to the promised land? He was a pagan. What kind of pagan? The one that worships pagans. <laughs> the, the kind that worships pagans. Yeah. He worshiped pagan gods. He was an idolater. So you'll notice when we t- covered the story of Noah, Noah was considered, you know, it says that he was righteous in his generation. This, the, the, those words are not said of Abram. All right? Abram is a lot like me, is a lot like you. In fact, Abram's one of these guys where, well, prior to him becoming a believer and truster in the one true God, he was something different. So we read in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, here's what it says. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So, let's make sure we do not whitewash Abram. So here's the idea, is that Abram is a pagan, idol-worshipping unbeliever. He believes in, prays to, worships false gods. Then the word of the Lord comes to him, and he abandons those gods, and hearkens to the word of the Lord. And Hebrews 11, which we read last week, makes it very clear that Abraham did all these things by faith. The emphasis that's put on the wrong syllable by so many people today is they'll say something like, well, God basically came to Abraham and said, and you kind of have to imagine like this, God went, you know, Abraham, I, you know, I'm... I'm kind of powerless here until you make a decision. And, uh, and uh, would, would you pick me, um, please? I have this great thing I want to do in your life, but you've got to pick me first. <laughs> and then the person exercises their will and obeys God, supposedly. And then God, you know, he's kind of like a guy, you know, in a, in a wrestling match. Who's, you know, it's a tag team wrestling event. He's, tag me, tag me so I can get in there, right? No, not at all. The word of the Lord comes to Abram, and Abram is basically found by God at a time when he is at his worst, a pagan idolater. Now, as we read these stories in Scripture, you know, you're going to see a common theme with everybody. Everybody, all of the Old Testament patriarchs, they are messed up. They are sinners. The only person you can say was not messed up and was not a sinner is one, and that's Jesus. And so, when we, we look now at the story of Abram, we've, kind of, we've got the, done, the work that we've done where we've seen from the book of Romans and from the book of Galatians how to rightly interpret what it is that we're going to read. Now we are to the story itself. We're in Genesis chapter 12. And if you remember last week, we read in Hebrews 11 pointing out the fact that although Abram died in the promised land, the promised land is not really a strip of geography in the Middle East. The promised land, the geography points to the real promised land, which is the new heavens, new earth. Because Hebrews says that even though he died, 
he did not receive the promises. But he was looking forward to a better country, right? A heavenly kingdom. So now we've got all of our our framework. We're ready to launch into this story. And we're going to see some very interesting things in the story of Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Who's doing all the work? God. So God comes to Abram. We're not sure exactly how Abram heard God's voice. We do not know if he heard God's voice directly or if it was through somebody who was a priest to God. We don't know. But it just says the word, you know, that the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Now, if you look in your Bible, back in the book of Maps, and uh, Marilyn, you have the Lutheran Study Bible, right? Right in that section, it should kind of show you that uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abram's from, is a long way, long way from where he's going. Huh? Uh, Yeah, they didn't have any superhighways, you know. The way you got around back then was on foot or with a, a beast of burden. And so he ends up going from Ur the Chaldeans, which is kind of like old Babylonia. Um, you've heard of Nimrod. You've probably heard that name, very famous name. So, you know, Nimrod is associated with this area of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he travels n- kind of northwest up to Padamaran. And then he comes into the promised land from the north, coming through Syria, through that area. So that kind of gives you an idea. This is a long journey, and it's, it's actually probably a very good thing that God had him uproot from where he was and move somewhere else because in his, where he was, he was an idolater. And so the temptation and the pressure culturally and from family and friends is always going to be pushing him back towards idolatry, and God takes him out of that. And keep in mind... Abram is a direct descendant of the Messiah. So, the Messiah is unborn, you know, using the old English term, in the loins of Abram at this point. So, that's that scarlet thread of history. You know, the, the lineage of the Messiah has come up to this point and hasn't extended further. So, we keep reading. I, the Lord, will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? And that is a direct point. You know, the referent here is Jesus. You know, because Jesus truly is a blessing to all of the families of the earth. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. He did this by faith, Hebrews tells us. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now keep in mind, back in these days, 75 years old was still pretty young. Probably middle age. Which means yeah, um, he is not, um, he's not ready for the retirement home. Okay, not yet. So, when he, so he was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, who, by the way, is his half-sister, and Lot, his brother's son, that's his uh, nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land 
to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So now he's in the promised land. And if you're familiar with your story of the conquest of Canaan with the children of Israel after the Exodus, under Joshua, conquer Canaan. Ai is one of the cities that, uh, that's on the list that gets listed. So this is where he's at. He's now in the, in the promised land. And here's what we learn about <laughs> Abram. No sooner does he get there, he gets to the promised land. Well, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." The word sleazeball comes to mind here. <laughs> Serious? We're going to put on a pretense that we're not married so that I don't get killed because you're hot. And th- this plan is literally going to risk his own wife's chastity. I mean, that's literally how this is going to go down. I mean, so we've learned about Abram so far today that he was an idolater and his morals are less than perfect and I thank God for stories like this because God calls sinners God forgives sinners God gives grace to sinners and so here we have this story of Abraham and I would not exactly say he's what we we would call the most greatest example of morals that we should follow teach this one to the kids in Sunday school with a flannel board Okay, that would be awkward. (laughs) Yeah, be a bad idea, right? So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Yikes. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels given to him. Yes? Janet, you have that finger up. That's down. So she went in to be a concubine or something for the pharaohs? This is what you're telling me? And her so-called brother was paid? Yes. Yeah. Let's, Let's... Let's be a little crass here. He was pimping his own wife. Let's call it what it is. Okay? Abram gets paid very well. And his own wife is now in Pharaoh's house. You want to say moral compromise? (laughs) But he's doing very well because of this arrangement. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he's got he's got servants, camels, sheep. I mean, donkeys, sheep, oxen. He's made off very well. Now, you remember later in the story, Abraham. They come up with this wonderful idea to have one of his female servants be a surrogate, 
so that they can have children, that's where she came from. Hagar. This is where Abram gets Hagar. She's an Egyptian servant. This is where he acquires her. So, what's a person to do? Now, you'll notice here that God's going to straighten things out, that if everything depended on Abram's decisions, this really would have turned out poorly. So God decides he's going to intervene here. His, you know, the guy who is the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah and who is going to become literally the patriarch that everybody in the Old Testament looks to, or everybody in Scripture, all Christians look to, as the patriarch of faith. This is him. It is, he is a picture of a complete moral train wreck. So God steps in. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, <laughs> Abram's wife. So, Sarah, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him that they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So he got to take everything with him that he'd already been with. Oh, yeah. Tell me how just this is. I mean, is there any justice in this at all? I mean, he, this is highway robbery. He puts on a huge con. Oh, yeah. Sister. That's half right. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, if you're the closest kin, that's your sister. I want her as my wife. Here's camels, servants. Pharaoh's very generous. And then God inflicts plagues on them and says, go, go, go. Now, now you'll notice in a way here, now this is kind of fascinating, this story in a very small way begins to introduce us to a pattern that we're going to see in Scripture. Okay, This is kind of like the first time you see it. And you'll see it again with the children of Israel going into Egypt and Exodus, God inflicting plagues on Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh saying, go. Right? And all of that pointing us to Jesus, who his Joseph took him into Egypt and brought him out of Egypt. So you begin to see here the very first inklings of the type and shadow of going into Egypt, coming out of Egypt, of plagues being inflicted and punishment. And in this particular case... You sit there and go, yeah, I see it, but this is so f- messed up, you know, morally that, you know, do I really want to see it? The answer is, yeah, you do, because this is the first introduction to the pattern. Yeah. Now, typologically, Egypt is going to play an important role. Egypt becomes, if you would, the typological picture of being enslaved to sin and to a false deity. Because what is a pharaoh? A pharaoh is a god king. That means he's a false god king. He's a living idol, if you would. And so in, as the story develops, you'll see down the line, especially when we get to the Exodus, that pharaoh is a stand-in for the devil. Okay? Now, in this particular case, typologically, it's not quite working out. This pharaoh, he is literally the victim of a highway robbery. How do they know that the diseases came from Sarah? Huh? It doesn't say. In this particular story, it doesn't say. Now, if you want to make <laughs> want to make things worse, this is not going to be the last time he does this. Okay. There's the other side of Egypt, though. 
Yes. Now, there is another piece to this. And so you've got to understand typologically, I'm kind of broad brushing at this point. You have to take each story as it goes. But see, the thing about typology is it doesn't, it, not all the pieces always work. Does that make sense? But this is where we're introduced kind of the pattern of the Messiah, the chosen one going into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. This is the first time we see the pattern. Let's keep reading. All right. So they sent him away with his wife and, his, and all that he had. That includes everything. So he ends up literally looting Pharaoh. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, you think, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Bethel, house of God, is what that word means. And to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at the time of the Canaanites and the Perizzites, uh, were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now notice how merciful Abram is. Even though he, in a, in a patriarchy, is kind of king of the hill here, and, you know, he's uncle, Lot's nephew. If, if Abram wanted to flex his patriarchal muscles here in the family clan, he could. But notice how he acquiesces and says, you know, Lot, you go ahead and you pick. If you go one way, I'll go the other. You go ahead and decide. That's awfully generous on the part of Abram. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this gives us a little bit of a hint as to what the land was like prior to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Lush, great land. And so Lot sits there and goes, I'm going to look out for number one. I'm going that way. Turns out to be a fateful error on his part. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. You can hear dun, dun, dun. We all know how this is going to work out. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That is an understatement. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So you notice Abram, as he travels, he gets into the promised land, it says he builds an altar, he goes to Egypt, comes back to the place where he built an altar, he travels up to Hebron, and he builds an altar. 
So if, in a sense, you can start to kind of fill in the data here, he's bringing with him, wherever he goes, true church. He's worshiping and serving and trusting and believing in the one true God. Because God has called him out of idolatry. God has given him faith. And God now has taken him out of the land where there is idolatry. And one thing we know about Abram, he is both sinner and he is saint. Because he's not saint because of his good works. He's saint because of faith. And then his life begins to bear fruit in keeping with that. So you'll see on the one hand, again, I hate to put it this way, he pimps out his wife and makes off like a bandit. And then on the other hand, we see that he, he rather than taking what rightfully could have been his, he acquiesces to a younger man and lets the younger man pick. And, then he, you know, and he's not striving after anything. He's trusting in God's word and knows that all of this is going to be given to him by God anyway, so he can say to his nephew, you go ahead and pick wherever you want to go. You go there. And Lot, huh? Right, very wise, very generous, and also shows his faith. So with Abram, we see sinner and saint together. Look at your own life. What do you see? Sinner and saint. We have, because we are in Christ, we are washed, we're forgiven. Today we We had the Lord's body and blood. We have these new desires to do good things to our neighbor. And at the same time, we still have our sinful nature saying, no, I really want to take my neighbor out in the backyard and and stab him to death. Put him in a snowbank. Put him in a snowbank, right. For his own good, of course. So you see the, the, the two that are going on here. Sinner, saint. And this is a good thing for us to see so that we do not ourselves think that somehow our right standing before God is because of how good we are, we see how God deals with sinners. Oh, and by the way, you know why God calls sinners to be the ones whom he uses? Because there's nobody else to call. <laughs> yeah, I always find it fascinating. People sit there and say, you know, it's just an amazing thing that God calls wrecked and, and sinful people to, you know, to do his work. There is nobody else. <laughs> You know, God, for whatever reason, has not chosen angels to deliver the gospel to us. He wants us to preach the gospel to each other. And so the only people he calls are sinners, because that's the only kind of people there is to call. So, exactly. That's right. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lecture as we uh, look at Melchizedek and his importance as we understand what Christ has done for us. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Ravage and don't give a hoot. Bring up the Audis, yo ho! 
Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick, QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well, not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, by, also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, no, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it! What? What? I, I saw it over there, Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S? Yes. M-A-Y-E-R? Yes! Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated the version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. 
I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on! Ask me anything! We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Kennitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Kennitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Kennitz is two... Yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! I found it! Yeah! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Camden's is two natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit! I, I don't have any money! I'll take a check! I, I don't have a checkbook! I got a blank one! I, I don't have a bank account! Right! I'll buy it for you! There we are! There's change! There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home! There's wait! Your... Wait! Wait! What? 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 I can't read! You can't! Read. Right? Sit down, sit down, sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor, you know, never actually takes time to teach you the Bible and show you Christ from it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through uh, Genesis as we look at the uh, character of Melchizedek. Here we go. So now we come to this fascinating story, and one of the more important stories in all of Scripture and you think, why is this so important? Because we will see here in this story in the Old Testament 
of the introduction of a character that is very little mentioned in Scripture, but has a huge, important role in Scripture. Okay? I'm talking about Melchizedek. Thinking, Mel, who, what? Work with me. In chapter 14, in the days of Am-Raphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedalatimur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shamember, king of Zeboim, and, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, and all of these joined forces in the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Ketelatomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelatomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the and Emim and Shava Karathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. That is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Thinking, what on earth are we reading? And believe me, it is verbal gymnastics. Okay? Yeah, easy for you. No, it's not easy for anybody to say, period. So we've got something going on here. We're getting, notice again, notice all the details. We, have, we know the names of this. And by the way, we, we're not exactly sure, although we kind of know probably where Sodom and Gomorrah are. We don't have any writings from them. So here we have an account of peoples who've been wiped off the face of the earth, and we know the name of the king of Sodom, and we know the name of the king of, of Gomorrah. So this is giving us history here. So we have a little bit of some kind of a political upheaval. There was a king, Ketelotomer, who was over these other guys. So you can kind of think of him as the Lord. And these other kings were vassals, of, if you would, of Ketelotomer. And they rebelled against him. And so we have a little bit of an idea of, of some kind of a upheaval, a rebellion, a coup d'etat. They want a change of the arrangement. So then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Ketelotomer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amram, Aphrael, king of Shinar, and Ariak, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. Sounds like a fair battle. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. Whoops. All right. Who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people." Abram takes a force of 300-something guys, divides them, and attacks at night. 
And although he had a smaller force, he was able to win the battle, obviously clearly through the Lord's help too. And now he's rescued Lot, he's rescued the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the Zeboim, and now all of this booty, you know, is technically his. He won the battle. So we read, after his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And now here's the fun part. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So who's getting the credit for the battle win? The Lord. And this Melchizedek guy just literally parachutes in. Where'd he come from? Who's this guy? King of Salem, king of peace. And Abraham and Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Then uh, let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. And that's the story. Who on earth is this Melchizedek dude? He's a priest. So there is a priesthood. Melchizedek is the one in that priesthood. What does he bring out with him? Bread and wine. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And that's his appearance. I mean, it's like it's this really weird, obscure, all of a sudden, there he is. He blesses Abram. He receives a tithe from him, not of his own possessions, but of the booty. And whoosh, he disappears. Hmm. Reincarnate. Hmm. Let's take a look at some passage. Now, remember, our, remember Scripture interprets Scripture. Where also is Melchizedek talked about? Now, I'm going to back it up a little bit. We're going to take a look. Um, we're going to go to chapter 6, starting at verse 13. It is a trick question. Now, watch what's, what Hebrews does with this. The inspired author of Hebrew writes, starting at verse 13 in chapter 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie. That's an important statement, by the way. Is it possible for God to lie? Yeah. No, it's not possible. It's not even hard for him. It's impossible. Impossible. God will always tell you the truth. It is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So in Scripture, there are two priesthoods talked about. There's the Levitical priesthood that you have revealed in the Mosaic Covenant, where the people of the tribe of Levi, the men there, serve at the tabernacle and then ultimately at the temple. Only the Levites are the ones who are able to offer the sacrifices at the temple, right? And then you have a second priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood. And there's only one person who possesses that priesthood. Jesus. Let's keep reading. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, by the way, Melchizedek means king of Salem, king of priests, right? king of peace. He's a priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So who's Melchizedek again? It's Jesus. Now, what should clue you in on that? He shows up with bread and with wine. And this text says the guy has no beginning, no end of days, no genealogy. Yeah, I don't know anyone else like that, do you? That would basically mean that Melchizedek has like always forever been. And there has never been a time when he hasn't been. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he more than resembles. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is the writer of Hebrew's way of saying, Melchizedek, <clears throat> the answer is Jesus. You know, yeah. It's Jesus. So there he is. Jesus shows up. Bread and wine. Oh, and by the way, Jesus showed up this morning too. Right? Did he not? Did you hear those words? Take, eat. The body of Christ broken for you. Take, drink. The blood of Christ shed for you. There, there was Jesus in Genesis, right in front of everybody. If you could take a video camera back in time, you know, we'll get the, uh, the Jerusalem Channel 10 news, right? Their report. So Abraham, tell us about the defeat of the uh, king of uh, defeat of King Catalatomer. We heard you like attacked by night, divided up your forces. Oh, and you and you met with Melchizedek, right? Yeah, tell us about that guy. Right? Bread, wine. Weird. I gave him a tenth of everything I had. Who is he again? I don't know. Has it's a weird guy. No genealogy. Just showed up. Right. We call this a theophany. It's called a theophany. It's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And believe me when I tell you, the Old Testament is filled with these. I mean, have you, have you seen, you've seen the Back to the Future movies, right? Okay, remember the Back to the Future movies where uh, Doc and, and um, 
and Marty go back into the Old West, and they took a photograph in front of the clock tower when, when, the, clock, when the clock was being, you know, when they had raised the money and they were getting the clock going. And you could go, and they were able to see a photograph of themselves in front of that clock tower in the future. It's kind of like that. You know, Jesus, you got to remember, eternity, infinity is outside of the time-space continuum. So all of human history exists kind of, if you would, as this thing that's not eternity. And Jesus, as God, who exists in eternity, can literally interject himself anywhere in the timeline. He can see the end from the beginning. Right. He's a time lord in that sense, right? Yeah. He is the Lord of time. So you kind of have to... So here, if there was a photograph that could have been taken of Melchizedek receiving the tithe from Abraham, holding bread and wine in his hand, you'd sit there and go, that's Jesus. Right. Let's read a little bit more. Yeah, see, he... He, Jesus inserts himself all over these texts. That's the funny thing is, is that, and unless you know it's him, unless you have the New Testament and you get it, you, you can't really make sense of this stuff. So here you've got this Melchizedek guy showing up. What do I do with that? Okay, well, you need to actually get the rest of the story. The rest of the story is in the New Testament. Once you know who it is, you can go back into the Old Testament and say, oh. <laughs> you know, right? Now watch this. So he, see how great this man was whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, in the, case, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah." And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you, of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a far better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made, an o uh, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever." 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Just mind-boggling. So we talk about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Now here are the details. Out of the tribe of Judah does the Mosaic Covenant say that anybody who's of the tribe of Judah can be a priest. No. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, yet he's our prophet, priest, and king. And now we know the details. He's a priest on our behalf making intercession. And his, his sacrifice was the sacrifice of his own blood for the remission of our sins. And he is a priest, not in the Aaronic priesthood, but he is the singular holder of the office of the priesthood of Melchizedek by virtue of the fact that he has an indestructible life. He continues in that office forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. You can say true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. This is an important thing. You remember when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, right? Okay, He goes up Mount Sinai, and not only does he receive the Ten Commandments and the Covenant, he also receives very explicit directions on building the tabernacle. And when he's receiving those explicit directions on how to build the tabernacle and all of the furniture and the implements of the tabernacle, you know, he has to pay close attention because that is a copy of the heavenly one. So here, this kind of this fleshes this out too. So. There is a very real tabernacle, not made by human hands, but made by the hand of God himself, okay, that the Lord has set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer, sacrif- to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle or the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what's, our, what's the standing of the old covenant? It's obsolete. It's vanished. We're not under the Mosaic covenant. It's done its thing. It's served its purpose. Now, think about this then regarding implications with current events in modern-day Israel. Let's think this through. Last week we showed from the book of Hebrews uh, also that the strip of territory in the Middle East, the promised land, type and shadow, points us to the promised land, which is new heavens, new earth. Right? Okay. Think about this then. The big deal is that there are people who want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Good thing or bad thing? Bad. Yeah. Right. Are they Hebrews? Oh, well, well, see, here's the thing. There are people who are Jews and there are Christians who think that this is a good thing. Literally, you've got to understand this. The Old Testament religion that was revealed to the patriarchs in the Old Testament, that religion has been physically impossible to actually practice since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There is no, there's not one person on the planet today who can say that they are truly Old Testament biblical Jews in practice. It's physically impossible. There's no temple. Why is there no temple? Because God has basically made void the Mosaic Covenant. The New Covenant is in place. The Old Covenant pointed us to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, He is the sacrifice. So if they rebuild that temple, is it going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. Yeah. Um, you know the altar of the Lord? You know, like this huge thing mm-hmm. Yeah. The altar? They lost everything technically in 70 AD. Are you familiar with the Arch of Titus? Yeah, the Arch of Titus has inside of it, and this is, Titus was um, the, the general who, who became emperor of Rome for a little bit of time, but he had a short period that he was emperor. Inside the Arch of Titus, in relief, it shows the victory parade through the streets of Rome after the fall of Jerusalem. And it shows the menorah, the altar of incense, it shows the silver trumpets, all of the implements that were made by the, uh, you know, to go with the temple. Those were literally taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem was scraped off the temple mount. 
In fact, it sits in a, in a rubble heap, okay? Not one stone was left, and the implements were paraded through Rome, um, and then those actually show up in relief on, uh, on the Arch of Titus. So that's when all of these things disappear. They can't make sacrifices without the altar. Yeah, you need all of those things. You need all of those things. Well, they're going to have to recreate them according to the pattern. So the question then comes up then, you know, this, this is, we'll do a little history here. Um, which group of people living on the planet today deny that Jews have any historical connection to the land of Israel? Muslims. Yeah, Muslims. Yet there's historical evidence galore that puts the Jews exactly there, and including the Arch of Titus. I'm surprised they haven't blown that thing up. But now, get this. The, the, the land of Israel today, being the political hotbed that it is, the, one of the major reasons why it's a huge political hotbed is because men in their sin are blind to the truth and reality of, of the significance of this place. It served its purpose, yet there are people now who are fighting over this territory as if this is the promised land, this is the religious high holy place or whatever. This earth is passing away. And if they rebuild that temple and start up all of these Old Testament sacrifices again, Christ is the once for all sacrifice for our sins. This is not a good thing. This is a slap in the face of God himself. If they rebuild that thing, I, literally, the only way I can describe it is I think all hell is going to break loose. But it, you think about it, just religiously, this, we're literally watching the concoction of the perfect storm. Zionists wanting to rebuild the temple. If they pull it off, you can't even imagine what's going to happen in the Middle East. Okay? And it... There's, it shouldn't be happening. Christians should not be supporting this. This is not a good thing. Then you've got this whole eschatological ISIS cult that's trying to hasten the end of the world. And they're as militant as all get out. And here's the other thing. When you read the book of Revelation, now I'm off on a tangent. When you read the book of Revelation, there's a section in the book of Revelation that talks about all of the Christian martyrs who are under the altar in heaven who have been beheaded. Now, stop for a second. When you look at the history of Christian martyrdom, has beheading been the predominant way in which Christians have been martyred? We're crucified, we're fed to animals, we're burned, okay? Beheading, all of a sudden this shows up now? How did John know this was going to be happening? I'm telling you, there's, there's some big stuff happening right now. And what it, what it all means, I have no clue. You know, when you start putting all of this together scripturally and, and look at the implications of how it plays out to what's happening in our world today, all I can say is grab a helmet, some knee pads, and, uh, and just hang on. It's, it's going to get interesting. You know, The world is literally going crazy right now, and it's religion that's driving it. And I would say really poorly informed religion that's driving it. And all of this, believe it or not, has everything to do with Melchizedek. That's the funny thing. Okay, if you understand that Jesus is our high priest, that according to Scripture, 
the Mosaic Covenant and the Aaronic Priesthood has served its function. It's done. It's, it's been abrogated. It's, been, it's passed away. We can't go back to the types and shadows, and yet there's, very, there's people all in the name of Jesus who are saying we need to do those things. Really? Now, I can understand somebody who is Jewish wanting to, to do this. I, it makes perfect sense. Okay, because the Jewish religion has not been able to be practiced since 70 A.D. But that's God's doing. God is the one who, who brought it to an end. Made it impossible for Old Testament Judaism to exist. I can understand their desire to bring that back, but that's all based upon a false assumption that Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And all of that, the whole, the whole cultus of, of the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant all pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. They continue to persist in sin and unbelief and do not believe that He is the Messiah or that He died for our sins. So it makes perfect sense that they would want to resurrect all of this stuff because they believe this is what God would want because they aren't paying attention. But if they succeed in doing this, this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. Yes. 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 Jerusalem is where Salem is. Yeah. So he's the king of Salem, king of peace. So there. I mean, there's a lot going on here. But you know, it's funny when you start connecting all the pieces and you got the Bible interpreting Scripture correctly for you. Now I'll take a look real quick at what's going on around us, and we realize, uh, you know, how did the Koreans say it? we're in deep kimchi? All right, we'll pick this up next week. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.